I'm going to shock you by telling you what I'm going to preach on. Love. <laughs> All right, I settled down. I know, I know that's a hard one. Uh, we have just felt led of God to zero in on this like nothing I've ever zeroed in on before. Uh, Got to get this one down. So we're going through 1 Corinthians 13 now and looking at what love looks like. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul's talking to the Corinthians. They were involved in all sorts of gifts, speaking in tongues, prophecies, and whatnot. And Paul says, that's great, that's wonderful, and it is great and wonderful. But the Corinthians were doing it in a way that wasn't loving. So he says, without love, that's all worthless. And so he tells them what love looks like so they can check their motivation. Not a to-do list, but a way of just noticing whether or not you're walking in love. And so I want to read 1 Corinthians 13 again for about the 12th time, but I don't think we can get too much of this. I really don't think we can get too much of this. I'm going to read it uh, from a, a different version. This is, this is uh, Eugene Peterson's version called The Message. Uh, some of you maybe have, have read that. It's not a translation, so you can't base doctrine on, on this. It, it's, it's, a, it's a paraphrase, but it's a very, very good read. So here's how he, he presents 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak with human eloquence and, and angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but a creak, the creaking of a rusty gate, a really irritating noise. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. In fact, if I give everything I own to the poor, and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So, no matter what I say, no matter what I believe, no matter what I do, I'm bankrupt. Everyone say bankrupt. bankrupt. I'm bankrupt without love. Love never gives up. That's his translation of patience. Love cares more for others than itself. That's his paraphrase of kind. So in 14.1, he, he concludes, Go after a life of love as if your life depended on it, because it does. Whatever I say, whatever I do, whatever I believe, if I don't have love, I'm absolutely nothing. Which means that the most important aspect of the Christian life, the, that, which, that without which everything else is worthless, is love. It's a theme we've seen that is repeated throughout the New Testament. Just to go over the verses one more time. Paul says, live in love, Ephesians 5. Live in this one. Don't ever get out of it. Live, breathe, think it, sleep it. Above all, clothe yourself with love, he says. Above all, Peter says, maintain constant love. Above everything else, whatever else you may say, believe, and do, above it all, love. By your love, Jesus says, people will know you're my disciples. This is going to be your distinguishing mark. Paul prays for, for the Philippians. Uh, that your love may overflow more and more. And he prays for the Thessalonians. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another. This is what's got to increase. This is what's got to overflow. This is what's just got to abound in our midst. The love of God flowing in us, flowing through us, like crashing waves transforming us. This is the, the fuel that the Christian life uh, uh, just operates on. Uh, my paycheck is, is, is when I see people getting this, uh, when, when they're transformed by this. This is the kind of message that seems so basic, it's easy to miss it. I had a testimony this last week of a person, and this is, I think, pretty typical. A person who uh, wrote and wanted to thank me for the message and thank me for, you know, just dealing with this. There are a lot of people who need to hear this. 
I, you know, she's been a Christian since third grade or something, and so it doesn't really apply to her because she's already got this one down, but, but it applies to everybody else. This is what she was saying she thought. And so she was glad for the newcomers and the new Christians that they're hearing this foundational kind of teaching. And then she was driving out of our parking lot, pulled on the White Bear Avenue, and a car cut her off. And about three minutes later, she realized that for the last three minutes, she has not been thinking loving thoughts about this uh, car that cut her off. And she didn't even notice that. All of a sudden, she woke up to this. You see, our thoughts are so close to us, they're, they're on autopilot, that we normally don't notice it. Which means we can think that we're walking in love, but in fact, we don't. We don't think love a lot. We don't notice it until there's a wake-up sort of thing that happens, and all of a sudden she realized that this message applied to her as much as to anybody else. And so she, as we've taught before, she put a post-it note on each one of those polluting thoughts that she had in her mind, realized that she has this all the time towards people, this inner commentary that blocks the flow of love in her life. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the foundation of all that that's, uh, that, that's uh, of the flesh. She put a post-it note on each one of those thoughts to remind her to bless them and to ascribe to them the unsurpassable worth that God ascribes to them because he died for them. And she said that as she did that, she couldn't believe what happened in her life. It just uncorked something. You see, all, every thought we have that is not of love blocks the flow of it. And when you uncork that, when you learn how to collapse judgment, it just begins to flow. And, and you begin to look at people that before you, you had an animosity towards and now there's this love that is there. You ascribe unsurpassable worth to them. And she says she, you know, she feels like for the first time she's discovering what it is to walk in the heart of God, what it is to walk in Christ, what it is to see with, with, with uh, the eyes and the mind of Christ. That's what I'm talking about. That, that, that coin dropping in the slot where the, the, the thing begins to flow. I really believe that if we get this, it is so radical, so outrageously radical And if I may say so, the reason it's so radical is because it's so non-religious. If we begin to walk in this kind of love, really begin to practice this kind of love, it's absolutely outrageously radical, revolutionary. I believe it's the next stage of the Reformation. This is the next revival. God is going to baptize his church in outrageous love that makes it look very, very non-religious. I wanted to drive home this radicalness. I'm going to preach on kindness here in a little bit, but, 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 but uh, cut me some slack here. Uh, for, the, for you philosophical types, here's a syllogistic argument that drives home how essential love is. Premise number one, words, beliefs, and deeds without love are worthless. Paul just said that. Words, beliefs, deeds, whether they're true or false, they're worthless without love. Second, Paul says love is patient, love is kind, love is all the other things he mentions in 1 Corinthians 13. That's what love looks like. Which, if you think logically, comes to this conclusion. Words, beliefs, and deeds without patience and kindness are worthless. Words, beliefs, and deeds without patience, kindness, and all the other things that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 13 are worthless. Creaking gates. Which means, final conclusion, the only thing, the only thing that gives worth to our words beliefs and deeds is love that is as basic as you can get the most important thing in our life is the the love all the right beliefs in the world we spend so much time trying to be right and defend our rightness but you know what you do that without love it's absolutely worthless i wonder do we really believe that do we really believe that what paul's saying is is that it'd be better to be a heretic with love than orthodox without love do we really believe that? Is that our priority system? As I look at the church uh, at, at large and throughout history, it doesn't seem to me that, 
that that revelation has very often caught on. There is a religious spirit that I don't think is of God that says, love, 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 yada, 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 compromise or water down, let's move on. That's so basic, so elementary. You know, let's get to the deeper stuff, like, like uh, you know, the, our eschatology or something like that. Uh, but, you know, here's the thing. And, and this is, I've, I've had an agitation. I, think, I hope it's a godly agitation about this all week. If this is so basic and, and so elementary, why is it so absent? I, why isn't the church known... By and large, for its outrageous love, its outrageous patience, its outrageous kindness. Why do we not have what Jesus had? And that's tax collectors and prostitutes and vile sinners hanging around just so they can feel some of that patience and love and understanding and acceptance. It seems to me that the church as a whole is a long way from this. And what, what, is, what is just mind-boggling to me is that Paul says that if this isn't down, there's nothing else worth getting down. I've been thinking uh, this last week about church history. It's, it's just the priorities of the church are so often, we argue so much, spend so much time, so much energy, and I'm not saying that beliefs are unimportant or anything like that, but we spend so much time on that, and yet you can do that in the most unloving way. You can speak truth, but if it's not done with kindness, it's absolutely worthless. Are our priorities right? Some of the things that go on in the church are just mind-boggling. You know, um, I, here's one. Uh, the, a, a guy in, in, in uh, Haiti that I know, a missionary there, is, runs his clinic, uh, feeds 90 kids a day. Um, his funding is being cut off. One of the reasons why he's being cut off is because the churches that are funding him are upset at him because he won't make the women in Haiti wear pantyhose. And they think that every godly woman should wear pantyhose, so they're cutting off his funding. Uh, another reason is because the churches can't get along with one another, so they keep on splitting, and that just disrupts the flow of, of uh, finances. So everyone's worried about pantyhose, and everyone's worried about the right doctrine and, and, and hair-splitting stuff. Kids are starving to death. Now tell me that, that that looks anything remotely like the kind of Christianity that Paul's talking about, where love is the foundation for everything. First three centuries of the church, a little walk in, in church history here. First three centuries of the church, the church was uh, practiced outrageous love. They weren't empowered. They weren't trying to control everybody. Uh, they spread the gospel by, by the influence of self-sacrificial love. They modeled the cross to the world around them. And it grew in a powerful, mighty way, even though it was persecuted. Christians were put to death on and off for the first three centuries of the church. Then with Constantine in 312, it became legal to be a Christian. And then in 381, it was made the official religion of the empire. It became a territorial thing. The next year was the first time in history Christians put a person to death. A mob attacked a pagan teacher and killed him. Something is changing here. St. Augustine, a couple of years after that, used the parable where Jesus says, go out and compel them to come into the, to the wedding feast. He says, compel, well, that justifies coercive evangelism. Like you can coerce people into the kingdom. And then throughout history, what you find, and this is just sad, uh, you find the church sometimes. Now, you also have uh, examples of incredible saints uh, who just display outrageous love throughout history and thank God for them. But to a large degree, the institution of the church has not demonstrated this out, outrageous love and kindness. They put heretics to death. That's not kind. They went on crusades. There was the Inquisition. Uh, thousands upon thousands of people were put to death by the institution. And, and let, let us, not, our, us Protestants not get too haughty thinking, like, oh, those nasty Catholics. The Protestants did the same thing. 
When the Protestant movement first began, they were saying freedom of conscience and, and, and we shouldn't be using coercion. But as soon as they got in power, they did the exact same thing. Michael, or, uh, John Calvin burned Michael Servetus at the stake with green wood so it would last longer. That's not kind. That's not patient. Is he, uh, there, there's something fundamentally off here. In fact, never has there been a time in church history where the church has been in power, where you had a state religion, where it didn't act the same as the secular government did, and many times it acted worse. Because you see, the, the power of the gospel is not the power of the world. The power of the gospel is not a coercive kind of a power. The power of the gospel is not the power to manipulate people with threats. The power of the gospel is a very different kind of a power, very different kind of an agenda. The power of the gospel is the power of outrageous love to influence people into the kingdom of love. Somebody say amen. When you start forcing people into the kingdom, it's no longer the kingdom of God that you're forcing them into. It may be the kingdom of the enemy. It may be the kingdom of your agenda. It may be the kingdom of your rightness. It may be the kingdom of what you call your orthodoxy, but it's not the kingdom of God's love. The only way to get people into the kingdom of God's love is by loving them. Doing what Christ did for all of us to bring us into the kingdom of God. If God, co- if God wanted to coerce people into the kingdom, he would have done it and, we'd, and everyone on the planet would be uh, in the kingdom because he wants everyone saved. But if God gives people space, we've got to give people space. My dad one time asked, it's in letters from a skeptic. This, is, this used to be a major stumbling block for me and it still bugs me big time. Uh, it is, I think, the best argument against Christianity. My dad, first question he asked in letters from a skeptic is this. If the church is preaching the truth, tell me why the church throughout history has done so much harm. And then he catalogs some of the harm that it has done. How can, in the name of truth, the church put together, put to death all these Muslims, all these Jews, all these supposed heretics, the Anabaptists and and whatnot, if if what is preaching is love? And my response to him, and it's my response uh, still today, is this. Insofar as any institution does that... uh, it has less to do with, with the, the, the true Jesus, the true kingdom of God, than the Islamic religion or the Buddhist religion or any other institution or any other murderer for that reason. Because murder is terrible, but murdering in the name of Jesus Christ is worse than that. Amen? The true Jesus, the, the, the kingdom that he brought has nothing to do with that. I don't even want to try to, That's why we always say here that what we're talking about is not religion. We're not joining a religion. We're not signing up to, to, to some human thing that, that people create. What we're talking about is a relationship with the true Lord, the true God who is true love, who saves us by his love, transforms us by his love, wins the world by his love, demonstrates his love for us in the cross of Calvary. When we start, when we start uh, doing... The force thing, it's no longer the, the genuine kingdom that we're talking about. And we talk a lot about, I want to get to kindness here in a second, but let me say one more thing. We talk a lot about spiritual warfare, and we need to talk about spiritual warfare because uh, the world is caught in this warfare, and we need to be involved in warfare. The Christian life, you're signing up for the, to the army, and you have a role to play. Uh, to live not like you're on vacation, but to live like you're in a, in, 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 in a war zone because you are in a war zone, and that makes a difference in everything. But you see, sometimes people take that, that, that idea of warfare and they think about war the way the world wages war. 
Paul says that the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, they're spiritual. It's a totally different kind of a war. The way the world wages war is by violence, it's by control, it's by domination. Sometimes perhaps it's justified, sometimes perhaps it's not justified, but it's always about developing an animosity to the enemy, and the enemy is always people, and the goal here is to win and to kill if necessary. That's the way the world wages war. The way the church wages war when we're doing it in the name of the kingdom of love looks entirely different from that. People sometimes think that our enemies are other people. You know, it's those liberals. They're they're the problem. It's the the ACLU. That's the problem. It's the evolutionists. They're the problem. It's the abortionists. You know, they're the problem. It's the transvestite society. They're the problems. It's the the Democrats. They're the problem, you know. And and, and we tag people as the problem, and then we get mad at people. So the church develops a reputation for being angry rather than outrageously loving. But I got a word for you this morning. The enemy is not other people. It's not the ACLU. It's not the Muslims. It's not the terrorists. They are the, they are the battlefield that we're fighting for. We're, they're the ones we're trying to win. The enemy is a principality and power of darkness who's behind all hate, who's behind all destruction, who's the opposite of love, who's behind all division, who's behind all racism. People are the ones we're to be loving outrageously in the way we win them in this war is by modeling Christ-like love towards them, self-sacrificial love towards them, loving the unlovable. And God uses that as he uses the cross to win the hearts of people. He woos people. He doesn't torture people into the faith. He woos them by his love. This is so central. This is so central. Everything hangs upon this. Now, what does love look like? We've said it looks like patience. Makro through Mia we talked about two weeks ago. Now I want to talk just for a word for a minute now that it looks like kindness. It looks like kindness. Peterson says, translating or paraphrasing the Bible, go after a life of love like your life depended on it, because it does. Make this the focal point. If love is kindness, we could also say, go after a life of kindness like your life depended on it, because it does. It seems so basic. It seems so elementary. So Sunday School 101, be kind. But the Bible says we are to go after this uh, as if our very life depended on it. This is as deep, as central, and as profound as it gets. Now, what is kindness? Peterson translates it this way. Love cares more for others than itself. Kindness is caring more for others than itself. I don't think this means that if you're kind, you let people walk over you. I don't think this means that you never, you know, consider what's good for you. That you always let other people have their own way. Let alone that you put up with mean stuff, abusive stuff, cruel stuff, and do it in the name of kindness. That's, co- that's dysfunctional codependency, perhaps, but that's not kindness. It's not kind to another person or to you to let them walk all over you. It's not kind to enable them to be indecent towards you. That's not kindness. What it does mean, however, is this. You live your life without the perpetual thought of what's in it for you. Kindness is going out of your way to benefit another, and here's the selfless part, without a thought thought of what's coming back to you. Kindness is going out of your way to benefit another simply to ascribe to them the worth that they have because Jesus died for them without a thought of what's coming back to you. It's very easy, it's very common to be kind when there's something in it for you. 
Don't we do that all the time? When you want something, it's time to be nice to the other person. Kids do this all the time. In fact, kids are experts at this. Come birthday time, man, they're sweet. Come Christmas time, you know, all of a sudden it's just, oh, there's, aren't our kids so sweet? They're just such adorable little angels. You know, they're being so nice. How nice of you to volunteer to help out around the house. Well, yeah, you know what? You've taught them well. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. If you want any presents, you better be nice. And so, so of course, they can put that on. And, and we learn that, you know? And that's, that's smart. That's, that's being a smart kid, you know? You want to make a good last impression before Christmas. But that's not kind. Because, see, it's, there's something in it for you. And we adults do this all the time, don't we? Let's be honest. We, 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 we're nice when it's to our benefit to be nice. Heard of a husband who had read the book, now it's kind of common knowledge, that, uh, how can I say this? Well, you know, we, guys compartmentalize sex, right? It's like, you know, it's, it, it, you can be in the middle of an argument and then they, they suggest it. Uh, you know, honey, what about it? So, but women don't do that on the whole. They're much more holistic. And so, you know, the, the books out here, this is good advice here, is that uh, the husband needs to regard helping out around the house as sort of a form of foreplay. And some husband got a whole... I think a woman wrote that book, by the way, and it was very smart on your part. <laughs> it may not even be true, but, man, you got one on us here. Uh, you, know, you, got the, you, you know the chain to pull. Um, and so this guy, the wife would always know when he was feeling amorous because all of a sudden the house is clean. You know, the dishes are surprisingly done. Uh, who vacuumed the carpet? Well, guess what? <laughs> you know? uh, no, no, that's smart. <laughs> I want to give the guy, that's very smart. Husbands, take notice, do that. But, but, but that's just being smart. That's not really being kind. Uh, you know, there is a little friend's benefit here that we're talking about. Kindness is when you go out of your way to benefit another person without thought of what's in it for you. When, when you do it just to ascribe worth to them. It is that gracious ability to give yourself away just because the other person is worth it. That's, that's kindness. One of the best examples of this in the Bible, I think, is, is uh, the first miracle that Jesus performed uh, at the wedding of Canaan. Went to a wedding, a party, festival. The guy ran out of wine. This is, this is a major embarrassment. You know, we're half done with a party and there's nothing to drink. And, and it, it's, it's humiliating. So Jesus used his miracle-working power to change water into wine in order to save this guy this embarrassment. In fact, it was the best wine. You know, when 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 the host served it, all the guests said, whoa, most people serve their best wine up front. And then, you know, when you can't really tell the difference, you serve the the worst wine. You save the best to last. And so he, he, he helped the guy out a lot. Now, this miracle used to really bug me. First of all, in the church I was first saved in, I was wondering what on earth is Jesus turning anything into wine for? I mean, he's not a very good Baptist here, is he? I mean, <laughs> and it was explained to me, well, that was just grape juice. Yeah, you've saved the best mulches to last, you know. It's like <laughs> and I really can't picture Paul saying to the deacons, and this is in the Bible, don't be given to too much grape juice. You know, it really impairs your judgment. You got purple all over your lips. People won't take you seriously. You know, don't, don't do that. It's, it's not good. No, it was real wine. But it used to bug me. It also used to bug me that it seems like a superfluous miracle. You know, it's like you got lepers all over the place. You've got, you know, crippled children all over the place. Why don't you spend that miracle on one of them? What are you doing wasting a miracle changing the water into wine for a wedding guest? 
In fact, throughout history, uh, scholars have kind of wrestled with that and thought, surely it can't be as trivial a a miracle as as it looks, you know, so there must be some spiritual, deeper spiritual significance to the thing. And so they theorize that maybe the jars are, the jars represent the soul, and, and the water represents the unregenerate nature, but the wine represents the nature of God. That's what the passage really means. Knock it off! <laughs> the passage means that Jesus helped a guy out by changing water into wine. And now that I look at it, Seeing the centrality of love and therefore kindness, this is, a, this is a profound passage. It's a profound passage. His first miracle, he's going to demonstrate the importance of being kind. He helps the guy out because the guy was in an awkward, embarrassing situation, and that's what kindness does. God is kind. Jesus is kind. Jesus calls us to be kind. Helping someone out of an embarrassing situation is kind, so it's a profound miracle. Kindness is slipping a $10 bill to the person in front of you who got more groceries than they could afford. And so instead of having them call over the microphone like they always do, hey, Harry, get up here. A lady has too many groceries. You know, she can't pay for it. And you humiliate her. You slip her a $10 bill, and, 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 and you say, look, if people have been nice to me, it's, an, it's a privilege to be nice to you. Just take it. And, and do the same when, when, when you, to someone else when you can afford it. You know, that's kindness. Kindness is leaving your, your spouse a little love letter. My, life, my wife loves it when I use her lipstick to write I love you on, on, the, on the mirror. And, and, and without ulterior motive, all right? Okay, that's just, that's a free one. Uh, that's kind, you know? And she leaves stuff like that for me. That, 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 that's what kindness does. Kindness looks for opportunities like that. Kindness is being on the bus and the person standing is holding groceries and you have a seat and you're not holding groceries so you offer up your seat. That's kind. Kindness is going out of the parking lot and you really have the right of way but this person looks like they're really in a hurry so you let them go first. Yeah, you know, that's kind. And some mornings I'm told we need a little more of that leaving church, especially after second service in our parking lot. There's people who are outstanding in the parking lot. Well, thank you for that. You know, but that's, that, that's what kindness does. Kindness is greeting a stranger, making people, a person feel welcome who otherwise wouldn't feel welcome, looking for the person who doesn't have anyone to talk to and talking to them. That's, that's walking with the eyes of kindness. Kindness, here's one to be thinking about. We'll be dealing with this more, you know, uh, we're now going to deal with it in January, I guess. But, but kindness is giving sacrificially for a, a youth center for a youth that you're probably never going to even meet. But just so kids have a place to stop after school so they'll stay out of trouble and a place to go on Friday night where they're going to come under some Christian influence. And, and maybe you don't have kids that will benefit from this, but other kids will. It's kind to ascribe worth to them by giving sacrificially. Kindness is Jesus, the God of this universe, robed in flesh, getting on his knees and washing the feet of his disciples. That's kind. The feet were dirty and stunk, so someone had to wash them, so he said, I'll do it. See, that's, that's what kindness does, and it's central to everything we are about. Well, we have really, as, as uh, let me say a word about us as a church here. The, the leadership of the church has really seen and felt the burden more intently than we ever have that, that one of our fundamental jobs as a body is just to demonstrate kindness to the neighborhood and the city around us. 
without thought of what's coming in, without sort of a covert way of slipping a track or something, just because it's the right thing, the loving thing to do. We right now have these random acts of kindness. Every two weeks, we have people come together, or every two weeks or so, people come together and they just go out into the, into the uh, you know, neighborhoods and, and clean up and help people with their lawn and help people with their driveway and hand out Cokes to joggers. And, and in any way we can, just want to show acts of kindness. And it makes an impression. We were in the paper a couple weeks ago for it. You know, that's, that's, that's displaying the character of Jesus Christ and that's what we're called to do. We, want to be, we, we now have small groups helping out almost every week at, at the, the homeless shelter. Um, a number of people volunteering there at the Dorothy Day Center, which is a center for battered women. And we have, we have people on staff whose job it is to look at the opportunities that are available throughout the Twin Cities and ask, how can we simply serve? How can we wash the feet of our culture? How can we turn their water into wine? How can we demonstrate the, the outrageous love and kindness of God to them? And, and uh, we want to be more intentional about this. We're now developing strategies to take all of our small groups and, and opportunities for other individuals and plug them into these sorts of things on a regular basis. That's what gives credibility to the words that we preach. But the goal is simply to do it because it's the right thing to do. It's the kind thing to do. We ascribe worth to them by serving them. How do you become kind? How do you become kind? How, I, how do you become a, a, a loving, kind person? As with patience and as with every aspect of love, you just can't walk out and say, abracadabra, I'm going to do it. You can act kind, but to be kind in heart and thought as well as deed takes a transformation. The transformation, as with every area of love, is simply this. We need to die to self. Love is about dying to self. As it's about living out of a full self from the life that we get from Jesus Christ. If you're living to some degree out of an empty self, the world's going to revolve around you, and the purpose of the world is to meet your needs. This is life in the flesh. This is life in Adam. And if you're walking out of an empty self, then you will see the world and interpret the world in terms of how it can meet your needs or not meet your needs, in terms of what's convenient for you, in terms of what benefits you. And you may act kind when it's, when it, when it, when it's going to benefit you somehow, but there won't be an overflowing of kindness that simply ascribes worth to people and goes out of your way to ascribe worth to people. You won't be doing that because you're empty on the inside. In other words, what we need is more of Jesus Christ, less of ourself, uh, so that we know the world doesn't revolve around us, but rather we revolve around God and get life from God, and now we overflow with the life of God flowing into us and flowing out of us. We, we become kind. See, you won't even notice the thousands of opportunities you have every day to be kind if you're operating out of an empty center, you're centered on yourself. You'll be at the wedding of Canaan, and you're mad because you don't get wine. That's what you'll notice rather than the embarrassment of the host and how you can maybe help them. You see, it's about being freed. And this is life. If you lose your life, you'll find your life. This is about being freed to love, free to be patient, free to be kind. It's freed from the self, dying to self and getting the life of Jesus Christ into our life. Flowing into it. It's like, it's like we sang this morning. One of my favorite worship songs we sing. Holy love, flow in me. Fill me up like the deep blue sea, like the Atlantic Ocean. Fill me up with your love. Like the crashing waves pouring over me. Holy love, flow in me. That's what's got to happen. That's got to be our prayer. Lord, fill us up because we can't give what we don't have. Fill us up with that love and then show us, open our eyes to the thousands of opportunities we have every day to show kindness just because it's the right thing to do. And God will use that. It's the little things that build the kingdom. God will use that to further his kingdom of love in a mighty way.
I want to ask two questions. The first question is this. And can I ask everyone to be praying right now? Very quickly, I, I want to take one minute. This doesn't take long, but it makes an eternal difference. Are you here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? You've never died to yourself. You've never said, I want to stop living for me and I want to start living for you. Maybe you've been going to church a lot. Maybe you've never been in church. It doesn't make a bit of difference. The question is this. Do you know Jesus Christ? Have you surrendered your life to him? If you want to do that here this morning, I'd like you very quickly to stand up. I want to take 30 seconds with this. But stand up and I'm going to pray for you from up here. Would you just Where you are, if there's anyone here who's never done that, stand up in their seat. We had several pers- people, the, the first service, several last night. I wonder if there's any here. You stand up and you say, you know what? I want to live for Jesus Christ. Ma'am in the back, praise God. Praise God. Anybody else? Praise God. Amen. Anybody else? Stand up and the Lord says, if you're not ashamed of me, I won't be ashamed of you. Make a bold statement. Just stand up. Thank you, sister. I want to I live for him. It's not a pledge that you're going to be perfect because I can guarantee you, you won't be. But it's a pledge of commitment. You're a sinner in need of salvation. He died so you may be saved. This is what begins the relationship. Anybody else? Just stand up over there. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. God's moving. Be praying. Holy Spirit's tugging at your heart. Just yield. He'll come into your life, and he wants to live through you. This isn't a pledge to do it on your own. You can't. It's just a pledge that you want to receive him. Anybody else? He died that this might happen. One last moment. Okay, you who are standing, I I want you to pray this prayer. We're going to pray it with you just as a source of solidarity and support. Uh, Pray it from your heart like a wedding vow, but I'll lead you in it. Heavenly Father, you are God, you are Lord, you are King, and you love me. I haven't lived for you all my life. I am a sinner in need of your salvation. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die for my sins. And so I ask you, Lord Jesus, to forgive me, to wash me, to make me whole, and fill me with your love. Help me live for you the rest of my life. I surrender everything over to you. Amen. Welcome to the kingdom. I... Can you stir up? Praise God. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Praise God. Praise God. If I, I'd like to ask, I got another question coming here, but those who stood up, I want to encourage you to come up here in this corner after the service for one minute. Uh, this woman has some uh, information she'd like to share with you uh, that really will help you get started on the Christian walk. Second question, I want you to think about this. I'm going to end, leave you with this question. Are you a kind person? Test case. If there was right now sitting in front of you a six foot five man dressed to the hilt in drag, makeup all over the place, jewelry all over the place, dressed in drag, would your thoughts towards that person be kind? Now you'd notice that they're dressed in a way that you wouldn't dress and you maybe don't agree with their lifestyle, but would your thoughts towards them be kind? Would you be ascribing worth to them? Would you have a desire to make them feel welcomed here? Perhaps sensing that maybe they're feeling a little out of place here, but you want to, like a wedding guest, like a wedding host, help them feel accepted. Would that be your thought? 
If the opportunity arose, would you be willing to invite them over to your house as they are and not worry about what your neighbors would think? And if they, if the opportunity arose to go out to eat after church as they are, would you be willing to do that without worrying about what other people in the restaurant might think or maybe even more scary, what other Christians might think? You know, Jesus hung out with prostitutes, tax collectors, and sinners. It says that they followed him all around. It doesn't say former prostitutes and former tax collectors and former sinners. They were as they were. But see, there's a love that was there, and it's the love that changes them from where they are to where God knows they can be, just like he's still in the process of doing with us. You see, the love comes first. Be honest with yourself. Ask that question. Would your thoughts towards them be kind? And to the degree that that's not there, just know that's an area of your life that yet needs to die so the character and the love of Christ can come to us and flow through us towards every person, every person, every person that we come in contact with. We'll never have cross-dressers, transvestites, heroin addicts, uh, you know, prostitutes joining us in, in a big fellowship and feeling welcome if we don't really genuinely welcome them, love them, embrace them, accept them in our minds and in our hearts. Let me pray. Father, make us outrageously loving. Make us outrageously loving. Help us, Lord God, to have the boldness to stand up to that spirit of religion that that just constricts the flow of love. Father, give us the bold vision for a community that is not flavored by religion, but is flavored by your outrageous love that just breaks down the walls that the church has done such a good job of building up. Father, make us outrageously loving wherever we go, whoever we talk to, whatever their situation, whatever they look like, whatever they smell like, whatever they act like, Lord God. Uh, Help us to ascribe genuinely unsurpassable worth to them because you love them to the point of dying for them. Show us the thousands of ways every day that we can be kind to the people around us, to wash their feet, to change their water into wine, to affirm their unsurpassable worth before you. Do it, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Will the prayer team come forward? If you have any prayer needs whatsoever you want to have prayed for, I encourage you to come forward. You who uh, surrendered your life to Christ this morning, I encourage you to come up here and get some information, or if you're just interested in finding out more about it, go out and be outrageously loving.